May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Lent. It's a 40-day period, specifically meaning 40 days until Easter. And since Sundays don't count as a part of the Lenten fast, it starts on a Wednesday. Because if we count backwards from Easter 40 days and we skip over the six Sundays, we discover that Lent has to start on a Wednesday. Our hymns have a much different tone to them. They certainly aren't as joyful as at other times during the year. The story of the liturgy and the lessons are more pointed at a, at a battle between sin and life or between God and Satan or demons and exhortations unto holy living. The personal disciplines of many and fasting and praying and giving come to the forefront more than perhaps laughing and feasting. The ashes of Ash Wednesday, although now washed from our foreheads, continue to shape and form our thoughts and our minds throughout this season. This is the season of Lent, a penitential season, meaning we focus on our sin such that we can be driven to repentance and to seeking anew the gracious forgiveness and salvation we have in Christ, that great gift which we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. And this 40-day period is chosen specifically to pattern the fasting of Christ in the wilderness that we heard about this morning in Matthew chapter 4. If we remember the story and what we heard, Jesus is baptized and then he immediately enters into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And afterwards, he's tempted by Satan. And Jesus does this in accordance with Moses and his history who himself had fasted 40 days before the Lord established his covenant with the Israelites. The idea is that Jesus steps into the history of Moses and Israel, and he unites himself with it. And it's most evident in the mind of Matthew, in the very way that Matthew structures his gospel. And because of that, we should take note of it. I mean, let's think about some of the stories in the opening chapters of Matthew for just a minute. In general, the beginning of Matthew flows as follows. Jesus is born. After the Magi visit, Herod's enraged, and he's fearful about this newborn one that these Magi called the king of the Jews. So Herod kills all the newborn boys in an attempt to kill Jesus. And the Holy Family flees to Egypt in order to save Jesus. Now, let's jump to Moses' story at this point. Moses is born. Pharaoh is fearful of the number of Hebrews that are rising up and that he's fearful they're going to rise up against Egypt. So Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill all the newborn Hebrew boys. Yet Moses is saved as he's placed into a small ark-type basket and sent down the river. And finally, through this, he's brought into Egypt by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, let's fast forward some 30 years in Jesus' life. And in Matthew's account, this is what we find. Jesus is baptized. Jesus then goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. 
Jesus is tempted with hunger and with testing God and with false worship. And then Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount to the people. Now let's go back again to Moses' story in the exodus from Israel and Egypt. After being called by God to free his people, Moses confronts Pharaoh with those infamous words from scripture and song, let my people go. And after ten plagues upon Egypt, Moses takes the Israelites and they do what? They cross through the midst of the Red Sea. Their baptism, as St. Paul will call it later, they enter into where? The wilderness. And they are tempted with hunger and with testing God and with false worship. Moses fasts 40 days before the Lord on the mount. And Moses then comes down and he delivers to the people of God the law of God. Is not the story the same? I mean, sure, certain details and circumstances and timing are different. Jesus fasted before being tempted, and Moses fasted after the Israelites had already been tempted and and failed in some ways. But the structure of Matthew's gospel certainly shows that Jesus is the new Moses, meaning that the new covenant has come, and Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. So what we see with Jesus in the wilderness is Jesus entering into the history of Israel and uniting himself with it. And in Jesus' case, becoming it. Now that's going to be our bit of theological and scriptural reflection today. We could certainly consider more, but for today we're going to leave it there. Jesus, excuse me, relives the history of Israel. And through this story, we see God establishing the new and everlasting covenant with his people. Not through the basis of the law and sacrifice in Moses, but through the basis of Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice and righteousness. But yet, I don't want to simply have us feeling as though this story is somehow a static or theological or theoretical type of story only. Last year, when I was privileged to go to Jerusalem and to participate in the Global Anglican Futures Conference, otherwise known as GAFCON, the most amazing part was that of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. I mean, for someone who didn't really want to travel away from home for nine days, which is the longest that I've ever been away from my wife or my children, I have to admit that there were times when those personal feelings were more than overtaken by the feelings of wonderment and awe at where I was and what I was doing. As I said, I was able to walk in the the very footsteps of Christ. I had the opportunity to stand where our Savior stood. There were times when I entered into the very world of the Gospels, touching and connecting with the very stories of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all the stories that I've heard and read about my entire life. From visiting where the angels announced his birth to where he cried his first cry. From standing in the, in the place of his crucifixion to touching the stone upon which his dead body lay in preparation for burial. To entering the tomb from which he rose. In Gethsemane, some of the very trees that I saw, my own eyes saw, which we couldn't touch, were there 2,000 years ago. When our Savior earnestly prayed amongst them and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And whether these are the actual stones in specific places or not of each event, the mere aspect of entering into the realm 
of such history and of such great acts still moves one's heart and one's soul. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you get to step into the history of another and unite yourself with it. Some of you may remember doing something similar in your own life or in your own vacations. I mean, perhaps you visited, like my wife and I on our honeymoon, castles and and churches and places of centuries ago in a foreign country like Ireland or elsewhere in Europe. Or maybe you've visited Germany to stand where Luther penned the 95 Theses and nailed them to the castle door in Wittenberg. Maybe you visited great monuments and structures mentioned in history, such as in in Greece with the Parthenon or the Colosseum in Rome. Or maybe you visited our own United States history, seeing Plymouth Rock where the Mayflower landed. Or you've entered the buildings of Philadelphia where the founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. Or visited the White House in Washington, D.C. Or for us Texas natives and residents, since we just celebrated Texas Independence Day, perhaps you've stepped into the history of the Alamo in San Antonio. Or the place of the Battle of San Jacinto. Or other historical sites surrounding these events of nearly 185 years ago. No matter where it is or what it is, it's an amazing thing to step into another's history and to unite yourself with it. And this is what I was drawn to as I prepared for today and in my own heart as I reflected and thought about Lent. Lent is a stepping into another's history such that one might unite him or herself with it. Or more specifically, Lent is stepping into the life of Christ himself such that we might unite ourselves ourselves with and in him. As we spend these 40 days in the life and pattern of Christ, heeding his example, feeding upon the word of God, expressing ourselves in prayer, fasting from worldly pleasures and enjoyments, and even battling the temptations of the evil one perhaps more valiantly than we do at other times. Through this, our lives are being driven further and further into his life. What we do are not simply acts of some discipline. What we do are not to be perceived as as some sort of test whereby we prove our faithfulness to God. We should never think of it that way. What we do is to step into the history of our Savior, joining Him and walking with Him towards the cross and towards the resurrection. Our lives during Lent are headed for the cross. That's our destination. Of course, let me clarify that. That's our destination in sin. As St. Paul says, the wages of sin is death. It is our death, it is our punishment, it is our grief that pours out his blood on that cross. And so Lent in the wilderness, it drives us to death. The death is a result of our sin. But it also directs us to the empty tomb, to the new life that we have in Christ. We must remember that Lent is not just a time to lament our sins, but it is a time of lamentation such that we can rejoice on the other side of Lent. One of our church planters, who I was talking about just a moment ago in Rockwall, sent out his his weekly communication this week. And therein he quoted the words of an author by the name of Alexander Schmemann. 
And in his book, The Great Lynch, Memon offers the following quote. When a man leaves on a journey, he must know where he is going. Thus, with Lent. Above all, Lent is a spiritual journey and its destination is Easter. Beloved, we must keep that focus in mind. Lent is a journey of casting off sin such that we can put on the new life of Christ. To cast off the old man and to put on the new man, as St. Paul might say. And that process comes to us by walking in the history of Christ, of walking in his footsteps, of entering into his very life. Beloved, Christ, who is the creator of all things, had to literally enter into our history and unite himself with us such that he could open the gates of heaven to us. And so it is that if we're to enter those gates, and if we are to dwell therein, and if we are to enjoy the Most High God, then we must unite ourselves unto Christ. Uniting ourselves in his holiness, uniting ourselves in his righteousness, uniting ourselves in his victory over sin and Satan and death. It's through the casting off of our sins. It's through the the complete and utter reliance on the Holy Spirit to move and to change our hearts. It's through the walking of his path. It's through fasting with him in the wilderness. It's through the expression of God's love to others, just as Christ expressed. It's through praying with him in Gethsemane, lest we enter into temptation. But most importantly, it's standing at the foot of the cross and being cleansed by his blood. So this Lenten season, I would leave you with this thought. Let yourself enter anew the history and the life of Christ, such that your life can be all the more united to his. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.